0: Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In collaboration with the team at Merit, McMaster's education, research, innovation, and theory program in the Faculty of Health Sciences, we bring you our good Pie sub-series on good practices in education. Our Merit scientists and scholars share their education research expertise with us so we can enhance our own teaching practices. We've included an infographic with each episode to summarize the highlights of our discussion. Join us for a slice of good pie. In this episode, we hear Dr. Jonathan Sherbino talk about his various experiences as a medical professional. He discusses topics related to his teaching career, how podcasting has affected him, effective teaching strategies, and much more. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, John. It's so nice to have you here for our first episode of Good Pie, Good Practices in Education. So to start us off, I wanted to share a little bit of how I first got to know you, because it is somewhat related to the podcast and being on a podcast. I got to know you because of your Keyline podcast, so I can't remember exactly, but have you been doing the Keyline podcast for, is it 10 years now?
1: Well, thanks so much, Ruth, for having me be a part of this. Um, yeah, the Key Lime podcast is in its 11th year. Um, the thing that I realize is I'm attracted to pastries or to desserts. I'm on a, a pie podcast. I'm on a, a Key Lime pie. There seems to be a theme. I'm, I, my diabetes might be raging out of control <laughs> shortly.
0: That's great. Well, then my question for you to start us off is, given your extensive experience with podcasting, how have you seen that, if, if at all, how have you seen it change the way that you communicate?
1: Well, the, the Key Literature in Medical Education podcast started as a, an endeavour amongst uh, three friends and it's grown to four of us. And it really was a passion project that we did late at night um, with very little understanding of technology, of social media as an educational platform. And I would say that in the early years, the the sound quality and the audience was meagre on both sides. Our experience has been one of trial and error, and I think we were like some of the OGs of medical education podcasting. And we hit at a good time when there wasn't a lot in terms of content and people who were starting to be drawn to podcasting um, in other areas, maybe it was in their clinical practice, as health professionals, maybe it was just in their, their personal lives looking for different types of media, um, found us there and we grew with our audience. I think the biggest thing I understand now is the first conversations were conversations uh, amongst friends with the understanding that no one would ever listen to us. Uh, the Keyline Podcast now has a, a really large audience. We get about three hundred to 400,000 downloads a year. We're in 40 plus countries. And now it feels we're having a, a, an intimate conversation with friends, but it's like a lo- mm. bunch of people are listening in. <laughs> and so my attention to how I think about a problem or how I analyze a paper is, is an attempt to be authentic, but there is also now a newer or better responsibility because I don't want to misrepresent the work and research of colleagues or suggest things that seem funny in the moment, but that might might have an influence or an impact as small as a podcast could be, that is um, a distraction or a negative impact for the larger health professions education community. So I guess my my big take on that is I have a greater sense of responsibility and a fiduciary kind of commitment to that audience. They make time out of a busy professional life to, to attend to our podcast and I want to reciprocate that and be thoughtful back. It strikes me most when I go to conferences and people come up and share anecdotes about how they were in violent disagreement with a, <laughs> a thought that we had or, or an p- opinion I presented. or And others say, tell us these very poignant um, stories about how it was a precipitant for graduate studies. And we hear about how people embarked on PhD training because of hearing a podcast. And others talk about how we've you know, been a, a colleague because they may not have that Close community of other like minded health professions educators at their own institution, but virtually they feel connected and a part of a, a conversation. Albeit, I guess it's a unidirectional conversation because <laughs> although we get fan mail and lots, probably more critique mail than fan mail, um, the, the conversation is one sided through your, your podcast um, platform.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely how I have interacted with all of you in the Keyline podcast because I feel like over the years that I've been listening to your 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 podcast, I have de- I've developed this little fan club it, uh, of all you. and I'm sure that you have a fan club elsewhere as well. And so I've always wanted to ask you that question. And I wasn't actually expecting that thoughtful of an answer. Because, for me, as I think about recording these podcasts for our faculty development community, I thought, you know, the things that I've learned about communication are I need to talk a little bit more slowly, I need to talk a little bit more deeply rather than having the uptick in my voice, et cetera. So I was kind of expecting you to go there, but you gave a much deeper and well thought out answer.
1: Ruth, I would say I'm not surprised that you surprised <laughs> by, by my answer. I, I rarely surprise anybody with anything erudite to say, so I'm glad, no, I'm glad I've did, done it once on <laughs> on um, on record.
0: Well, actually, that's the opposite of my experience listening to all three of all, all four of you on the uh, podcast. So bringing it back to our good pie episode here, we had as um, just as an introduction to the listeners, Merit and Mac PFD wanted to find an opportunity to to collaborate and to identify ways that we can, in very brief podcast episodes, highlight some practices in education that would be useful for our faculty, our clinical instructors, and our teachers out there. So to set the stage for this episode, could you describe first the teaching context that you're going to be talking about? and then also describe a little bit more about you and who you are and where you practice.
1: Sure. Uh, First, Ruth, I would say I'm really excited by this joint initiative from the Program for Faculty Development and from Merit. I think it's a great opportunity to accelerate and amplify the best practices, the best evidence that inform common challenges we all face, regardless of the clinical discipline or the academic discipline, regardless of the teaching environment in which we find ourselves. We can be informed by evidence. And as a faculty, we have a strong tradition and a culture that says, let's advance education and health professions education. um, And and that's really part of the mandate of merit. Let's amplify that and ensure that our teachers are using the best evidence. And that's really the mandate of program for faculty development. I think together we can do some interesting things to, to continue to push our programs to be world class, which they are. So the background for me, when I'm not at Merit as the assistant dean there, I'm actually a full-time clinician. I'm an emergency physician who practices at St. Joseph's. I'm a recovering trauma team leader at health, Hamilton Health Sciences. So I understand both of our large health systems in uh, Hamilton. In the environment, um, I think, which is really helpful for us to think about, and I want to kind of expound on a little bit more today is the clinical teaching environment. A lot of the research that we are most familiar with and probably onboarded um, as we are early in our faculty appointment is the teaching that happens outside of the clinical environment. The the work that happens in a a lecture theater, large or small, a seminar, a workshop, one-on-one. And that's important. But what I think is really unique and interesting to health professions education is we have a clinical teaching environment which is unique. It's not found in other higher education uh, disciplines but it's unique to health professions. And so that is the operating room, the ambulatory clinic, the ward. And for me, it's the emergency department. And what's common amongst all of these, which is different than our extra clinical teaching that we might see in a workshop or in a a lecture, is that we have a competing or a parallel priority to ensure the best and safe care of our patients. And so we have these two streams, wanting to serve our, our patients and wanting to serve our learners. Likewise, our environments are unpredictable and typically uncontrolled. Um, we make best work of serendipitous encounters with our patients or things that happen in the clinical environment to bring an authentic experience to our, t- our trainees, but we can't plan or control or try to ensure that we can structure in an organized or deliberate practice type of way those kind of encounters. We supplement. Um, with simulation, we supplement um, with education that happens outside of the clinical environment. But I think the most important piece for us to understand is at the end of the day, we should never think of a way to replace the priority in the really profound teaching that happens at the side of a bed or at the side of an examination um, Mm -hmm. room or in the operating room or wherever it might be in that clinical environment. The ability for our trainees to learn from our patients is a really important and profound gift that our patients give to us and it's something that we need to be really thoughtful for but there's ways that we can be more efficient and more effective in that environment it's not a simple one-to-one transfer of what we do in the classroom to what we do in the clinic
0: that's a great setup and thanks for sharing a bit more about your background as well and i can immediately imagine that those clinical teachers, clinical instructors, those that are teaching in clinical settings with either individual learners or groups of learners will really find your practice suggestions helpful. So start us off and share with us some good practices in education. What are some that you incorporate into your own teaching?
1: Thanks, uh, Ruth. Um, I'll reference off the top some frameworks um, probably the most popular one is the One-Minute Preceptor. Uh, another one is the SNAPS model. Uh, one that I developed specifically for emergency medicine is something called um, EDSTAT, Emergency Department Strategies for Teaching Anytime. Apologies for uh, a wordy acronym. And so there's a number of models that you can use. I don't want to focus too much on models on our com- during our conversation today in that models speak to a rigidity or only a single solution. And I think you can find these very quickly. They're very intuitive and most clinical teachers will recognize the utility or how they've already incorporated these elements. So I'll flag those as if you're very early into your teaching practice. Here are some frameworks or scaffolds that allow you to facilitate that one-on-one engagement with training. What's common to all of them is typically the idea of getting a commitment from a trainee, providing some feedback. On that and then teaching a general principle and that's really where you're going to see the commonality between all those frameworks and there's some robust evidence that supports all of those. What I really want to talk about I think is four philosophies and the philosophies I like better because they offer greater flexibility, they offer the ability to tailor the experience as a clinical teacher to the nuances of your of your clinic or of your ward of your operating room or of your emergency department so that the nuances of which you wrestle with all the time, you can understand how to apply those. And the first one is you shouldn't have a static, one-size-fits-all approach to your teaching. So I la- label this tailor teaching. And really what it requires is for you to understand who your learner is. Um, diagnosing that learner or that learner need is important. If you approach all learners as a common cohort, your effectiveness and your efficiency is going to be lost. You might find um, the backgrounds that health professions, um, trainees come from are really varied and and really quite remarkable um, generation to generation. And so you might be teaching to someone who has equal expertise in a specific content area, or you might be assuming um, competence and be teaching at a level that's too high. And so it's frustrating to the learner because they don't have those foundational principles mastered. Or you might be teaching to an area of strength when really that trainee has a a lacune, has an area of greater priority in what they need to acquire during this clinical placement. And so if you understand, if you can diagnose who your learner is, then you can really tailor that encounter very specifically and very nuanced um, to the trainee. And that is going to maximize your time as a teacher so that you're not wasting time ineffectively Um, in repetition or in areas that are too complex and it's also going to speak to the trainee of the the attention and the the very nuanced way that you're engaging with them and i think that will also reciprocate um, a greater commitment to learning from the trainee as well what do you think about that ruth
0: yeah and that makes a lot of sense as knowing your learner would best optimize the very limited time that you have in sometimes a very chaotic environment. So not paying attention to those fundamentals around who is actually the learner to who, with whom you're discussing, that, that's a great start.
1: Uh, the next T I think about is targeting your teaching. And so many emergency physicians have been likened to golden retrievers that immediately when they see a squirrel go off in all directions but I think the time pressure when we're serving both our patients and our learners are common, regardless of the discipline that you might be in as a physiotherapist, as a midwife, um, as a neurologist, regardless of where you find yourself. No one's, I haven't met a clinical faculty member who says, wow, I have so much free time. How am I going to fill it up? The challenge, of course, is that we assume that our practice outside of the clinical environment should mimic our practice inside the clinical environment. So we want to deliver the 45-minute lecture on a topic because we're an expert or we're passionate about it, but it doesn't integrate well when we are trying to run clinic or when we're trying to manage the emergency department flow. And so deciding that we are going to offer a very discrete teaching point within the confines, but we are going to return to these teaching points multiple times over the course of the day, the week, the month, the rotation, whatever that looks like, cumulatively, you have the net similar delivery of information, but it's packaged in smaller aliquots so that it can fit inside the constraints of the the patient and the learner um, needs during that clinical environment. And so you don't need to replicate long um, discussions. In fact, it might be much more appropriate just from uh, a working memory or a cognitive load a point of view to have a very targeted teaching point that's limited, but that you return to and amplify and then build on over the course of the day, the week, the month.
0: Yeah, when you were describing how we should target our teaching immediately. I was thinking of the cognitive load issue and just with all the external stimuli that is facing a learner that as a teacher to be very specific. And I, I guess that's it makes sense why we always talk about the clinical pearls because that that's a, essentially a, a way to target our teaching for a particular situation and context.
1: Yeah, um, my third and next to last, uh, T, is to tag your teaching. There are faculty that have come to me and said, you know, I'm teaching my heart out and nobody's acknowledging the, that work I'm doing. And I think it's perhaps a, a two-way uh, responsibility. Our trainees are cued to say when I'm sitting down, when, I, when it's death by PowerPoint, or when there's some kind of prescribed reading, or when it's a demarcated period of this is the teaching session, that's when the teaching happens. And that's not what takes place in our clinical environments. Teaching happens in parallel with patient care, that dialogue, that engagement, that probe, that provision of feedback, that modification of practice, that providing a tip, all of those are different type of teaching practices. Our learners might not be cued to them and we might not be providing the appropriate cueing. And so I think the the third T is to tag your teaching. The simple act of the teaching point on this case, the teaching point around this patient, the teaching point in this instance, is three to five little words you add at the front, and it suddenly illuminates, oh, that's where the educational value, that's that's why I'm here as a learner in this clinical environment. I'm not just here providing um, patient care. I'm not just here having a clinical experience. I'm not just here because it's part of the prescribed curriculum there's actually education that's happening. Now it might seem trite, but I have had a number of education fellows who come to me and I said, I want you to do um, an AB type testing. I want you to do your regular teaching practice on day A and then then the following day I want you to go to using the teaching point is and just insert that in front of anything you think is an educational thing and then find or tell me what the learner experience is when you survey at the end of the day. And uniformly they go, wow, that second day was such a profound teaching day. I can't believe what's happened. (laughs) Nothing's changed except you've you've incorporated these tags into the rest of your day. And pretty quick learners catch on and it changes the whole discourse and the whole kind of interaction. And suddenly we have um, a better dialogue and a better kind of contract between learner and faculty about what is the the teaching environment, what's a teaching contract that's taking place.
0: It's, uh, as you're describing this, it makes so much sense. And I love this suggestion because we sometimes take for granted that as we're traveling down a road, if we're just saying, oh, okay, take in the surroundings, that's one thing. And that's kind of like our approach to just teaching and, you know, sharing our wisdom at any point in time. However, if we're tagging or signaling to another or signaling to learners that this, this teaching point is X, it's like pointing out on our our road or on our journey, the specific thing that we want them to pay attention to. And so I love that idea of signaling to the learner so that they are then able to pay attention to that particular point and to be able to sift through all the inputs that they receive and to focus on these targeted or tagged teaching points. I like that.
1: Yeah, I hope there's not too much an eye roll from the audience around this. It sounds a little trite, I think where it can be most profound is when you say the teaching point on this case is this I'm going to role model for you How I think best practices around X Y or Z is going to take place Our trainees are watching us practice all the time and that's probably the most powerful type of teaching we're doing but when we articulate it out loud it opens up that observation um, element and it opens up what's happening between that dyad that teacher learner um, connection and so you know it, it sounds trite to say but i would encourage people just try some a b testing and see what happens mm. in your own teaching practice and whether it does not create a, a fresh perspective for you as a teacher or for mm. your trainees and whether it maybe may not validate your own teaching practice a bit more
0: no i think it's great and uh, I, I appreciate that point because i've also seen that in my non-clinical teaching experience as well how that that tagging approach could be very useful and um, effective.
1: Um, My last T I think is probably the most important one. Hard to operationalize. I I do have uh, a reference that I hope you will add to the infographic that goes into a whole literature review around it.
0: And the last one
1: is the last T is trust. That we really have to be thoughtful about how to build trust with our students so that they can be vulnerable and that we can demonstrate vulnerability towards them. In the absence of trust, the clinical teaching environment can start to feel performative, where students don't feel safe to acknowledge their own um, learning needs or their limitations. They don't feel safe to to perform and then receive feedback that helps them get better. Um, They feel that they must achieve. They probably are not feeling comfortable or safe with how to practice and to acquire improved competence in the various competencies that they're having an opportunity to to learn and to acquire in that clinical environment and it's really not this building of trust is not just a one-way street Um, we build it by being vulnerable and allowing our trainees to see what we don't know and for them to see the areas that we're continuing to work and grow on And if we can nurture that trust, um, the teaching that we do becomes so much more supercharged, so much more efficient and effective because we break down the inherent barriers where trainees feel um, in that clinical environment, they need to already demonstrate the acquisition ability rather than recognizing they're there in the clinical environment to acquire a, a competency that they don't have as a novice.
0: That's incredible, John. And I really appreciate that fourth point because... I'm thinking back to the three initial T's that you've recommended in tailoring your teaching, targeting your teaching, as well as tagging your teaching. And I see those as primarily strategies that an instructor uses to then disseminate or communicate information and how important it is for us then to also be open to that bi-directionality that you're describing, where we can incorporate all these techniques into our own teaching practice, and yet not have receptivity from the learner. So I really appreciate that reminder that yes, the fourth component, which then undergirds all these techniques or teaching approaches would be also the need to have trust from the recipient or the learner in order to then promote learning. So thank you for that. Thanks Ruth. So given the four Ts, that you have shared with us today. Do you have any examples of how you've incorporated that? I know you've already included some, uh, some examples of uh, just tagging your teaching, but do you have any examples of how you've seen the, these approaches come to life in your own clinical practice?
1: I'm gonna put on the imprinter of, of a master teacher, which probably reigns a little false when I think about myself. So I would admit that I'm a teacher that continues to learn and my students will tell me that, you know, on my best days I'm mediocre and other days there's a different version (laughs) of that. And so I don't say this with any kind of sense of I've figured it all out. In my practice as an emergency physician, I see a lot of learners come through and I might have engagement with them if they are not part of our emergency medicine residency training program one to a handful of times. And so many of these trainees are new to me and so I start the day by a quick conversation about who they are and why they're there. And their answers, if they're insightful, give me insight. And if they are, you know, robotic, and, and scripted, or and templated
0: or, yeah. Yeah, or superficial, mm-hmm. it also gives
1: me insight too. Mm-hmm. I talk about some of the expectations that I have and some rules that I think are really helpful for them that gives them the latitude to know how safe it can be, and how they can engage in a very chaotic and chaotic learning environment, which is the emergency department. And then I check in with what some of the expectations they might have. And so we negotiate a shared understanding of what's going to happen that day. And then I usually say something like, you know, we're going to have a... a and so that's where I've got the tailored part. So I have a, mm-hmm. a bit of a diagnosis. That diagnosis gets refined over the course of the day. But let's be specific that knowing somebody for a single emergency department shift gives me a very superficial understanding of who that learner is. Um, for my junior and senior residents who I see over the course of five years, that becomes far more nuanced, and it builds over time. And then I usually tell that trainee, listen, um, after every time we present a case and we walk through that case management, um, we're going to have a 90-second conversation around something that's really important for you to learn from this case. And so I set the agenda that they come up with a question, but I I also establish the guardrails which say something to the effect of, we're not going to talk for, about this for more than 90 seconds. So if they say, I would like to learn about EKGs, I was like, that's not going to happen. We need <laughs> to mitigate what the expectation is. And then when we have that little teaching point and we said, well, all right, you, what's your teaching point that you want to work on? And we've already labeled that as in mm-hmm. the trust part. I, I think it's harder to put that into tangibles. I, I think that it happens in the sense of, i'm frequently telling them that it's okay to pull the fire alarm and cry wolf i want them to feel the freedom to have concern that they may not be able to articulate in a in a cohesive way about the safety of their their encounter because we have patients that are undifferentiated that can get sick quite quickly that have multiple factors so that they always feel the ability to say "I'm, i'm not sure what's happening here but i want more oversight um, I want m- more involvement from from me earlier or later in the case and I'll give them the ability to adjust that case to case. And so I think that starts to build trust. I try to use lots of anecdotes of, of my own practice and try to remember back to what it felt like to be a novice. Mm. I appreciate that my hindsight bias probably doesn't make it fully accurate, but I'm always trying to think about in my, if I could put myself in their shoes and remembering some of the ridiculous things that I found myself doing. Um, <laughs> because. I didn't have the permission to say, I'm not sure, I don't know, I, I want more oversight. And I hope that that has allowed me to be more effective as a teacher. I continue to learn.
0: Yeah, and I, I appreciate your emphasis on us continuing to learn because recognizing that at face value, yes, perhaps it might come across as trite these these uh tease that you've shared, but I don't see it that way because as you're sharing, even I, I'm thinking through my own teaching practices and thinking about ways that I can integrate these tips into the the teaching that I do in a clinical setting, out of a clinical setting, and in a completely different kind of course as well, and how I can improve my own teaching practices so that ultimately our learners are better able to learn, they have an environment where they feel safer to learn, and that then ultimately will improve their learning experience. So thank you. And I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your insight with us today.
1: Thanks so much for the invitation, Ruth. I'm also looking forward to hearing all the future episodes that I'm going to incorporate into my own uh, clinical practice as an educator.
0: Perfect. Yes. And so, Thank you, not to be cheesy, but thank you for teeing up our good pie subseries here in our Mac PFD Spark Podcast. I'm going to okay.
1: One-handed clap for that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd Here you can find other episodes, as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.